Section 19 of the Science History of the Universe, Volume 8. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria James, The Science History of the Universe, Volume 8. Edited by Francis Rolt Wheeler. Part 3, Mathematical Applications. Chapter 1, Early Non-Mechanical Applications. Modern life, as a whole, lies under a debt to mathematics far beyond calculation. Science has shown many underlying principles which govern matter, life, and mind in their several environments, and in their relation each to each, but it has required the mathematical faculty and the mathematical knowledge to transpose those principles into productive value. Mathematics may be termed the spirit practical application the flesh of a single and indivisible entity. Hence the term applied mathematics is to be used with caution, since it is inherent in the nature of mathematics that it shall not be divorced from any of its subsidiary uses, but remain as a vigorously vital and governing law. Mechanical principles, for example, are mainly mathematical deductions from principles enunciated by pure science, even as that same pure science finds itself dependent upon mathematical expression for the enunciation of those principles. The very words that are spoken or written bear a definite relation each with the other, and no more mathematical concept than relation could well be thought of. From the abstruse and remote questions of the affirmation of a stellar parallax in astronomy, to the multiplication of yeast cells in making a loaf of bread, from the lofty flights into the regions of the mathematically infinite to the counting of change over a counter, mathematics is applied and practical. It does not always appear mechanical because it has not always been transliterated into such forms, and these non-mechanical applications existed in antiquity as they do now. Applied mathematics, in that sense, is as old as applied thought, and applied thought is coeval with man. To think aright, says Professor Cassius Kaiser in an illuminative recent lecture on mathematics, is no characteristic striving of a class of men. It is a common aspiration, and mechanics, mathematical physics, mathematical astronomy, and the other chief, Anwendungsgebete, spheres of application of mathematics as geodesy, geophysics, and engineering in its various branches, are all of them but so many witnesses to the truth of Riemann's saying that natural science is the attempt to comprehend nature by means of exact concepts. A gas molecule regarded as a minute sphere or other geometric form, however complicated, Stars and planets, conceived as ellipsoids or as points, and their orbits as loci, time and space, mass and motion, and impenetrability, velocity, acceleration, and energy, the concepts of norm and average, what are these but mathematical notions? And the wondrous garment woven of them in the loom of logic, what is that but mathematics? Indeed, every branch of so-called applied mathematics is a mixed doctrine, being thoroughly analyzable into two disparate parts. One of these consists of determinate concepts formally combined in accordance with the canons of logic, 
i.e. it is mathematics and not natural science viewed as a matter of observation and experiment. The other is such matter and is natural science in that conception of it and not mathematics. No fiber of either component is a filament of the other. It is a fundamental error to regard the term mathematicization of thought as the importation of a tool onto a foreign workshop. It does not signify the transition of mathematics conceived as a thing accomplished over into some outlying domain like physics, for example. Its significance is different radically, far deeper and far wider. It means the growth of mathematics itself, its extension and development from within. It signifies the continuous revelation, the endlessly progressive coming into view of the static universe of logic, or, to put it dynamically, it means the evolution of intellect, the upward striving and aspiration of thought everywhere, to the level of cogency, precision, and exactitude. It is the aggregate of things thinkable logically that constitutes the mathematician's universe, and it is inconceivably richer in mathetic content than can be any outer world of sense, such as the physical universe according to which we chance to have our physical being. Close quote. The term practical, in its common acceptation, often denotes shorter periods of obtaining results than are indicated by science. It implies a substitution of natural sagacity and mother wit for the results of hard study and laborious effort. It implies the use of knowledge before it is acquired, the substitution of the results of mere experiment for the deductions of science, and the placing of empiricism above philosophy. But if to be practical be given its true and right signification, then it becomes a word of real import and definite value. In its right sense, it denotes the best means of making the true ideal the actual, that is, of applying the principles of science in all the practical business of life and of bodying forth in material form the conception of taste and genius. Beyond the obvious application of simple and known principles, the whole problem of the practical lies in the measurement, modification, and best uses of the forces of nature. The uses and applications of these must be fashioned according to certain forms indicated by scientific formulae. These formulae are constructed from the laws which regulate the cohesion of the particles of the substance employed. The nature of the force to be applied, the amount of that force, and the ultimate end to be attained. All these fixed laws of force, all their combinations, and all the forms of the material employed in using them for practical purposes, can only be reached through the processes and language of mathematics. The language of geometry and number furnished the architect with all the signs and instruments of thought necessary to a perfect ideal of his work before he took the first step in its execution. It also enabled him, by drawings and figures, so to direct the hand of labor as to form the actual after its pattern, the ideal. The various parts may be constructed by different mechanics at different places, but the law of science is so certain that every part will have its right dimensions, and when all are put together, they form a perfect whole. 
The influence of mathematical investigations on physical theories is not restricted to any single stage, but makes itself apparent throughout the whole course of their evolution. Numbers form the connecting link between theory and verification, and they always imply mathematical formulae, however simple these may be. There seems to be historical evidence that a practical acquaintance with certain rules of number and form was acquired by ancient peoples, especially by the Egyptians, before there was any knowledge of mathematics as a pure science. In Babylonia, geometrical figures were used in augury. Herodotus, Plato, and Strabo ascribe the origin of geometry to the changes which annually took place from the inundation of the Nile, and to the consequent necessity of settling disputes as to the extent of property, and of determining the tax due to the government. There was a well-developed system of mensuration in the time of the traditional biblical Joseph, and besides the extraordinary mechanical ability of the Egyptians in handling stone, they were able to construct accurately leveled canals. To ascertain the various elevations of the country, and, tradition says, to deflect the course of the Nile. At the time of King Menes, who is supposed to have performed this extraordinary feat, dikes had been built and sluices invented, with all the mechanism pertaining to them. The water supply into plains of various levels was regulated, and a report was made of the exact quantity of land irrigated, the depth of the water, and the time it remained upon the surface. All this required much mathematical skill, and it was not likely to be carelessly carried on, since the amount of taxes and the price of provisions for the ensuing year were ascertained at the time of the inundation. Nilometers, instruments for measuring the gradual rise or fall of the river, were in use in various parts of Egypt as early as the 12th dynasty. Quote, the employment of squared granite block and the beauty of the masonry of the interior of the pyramids, says George Rawlinson, which has not been surpassed, if even equaled, at any subsequent age, also proved the degree of skill the Egyptians had reached at a time long anterior to the rudest attempts at masonry in Italy or Greece. We may well conclude that the principles of construction were known to them, as well as the engineering skill required for changing the course of the Nile, even before the reign of Menes. The immense weight of the blocks of stone used in building shows that the Egyptians were well acquainted with mechanical powers and a method of applying force with wonderful success. The largest obelisk in Egypt is calculated to weigh about 297 tons, is more than 70 feet in height, and was carried 138 miles from the quarry. The Egyptians could not only move immense weights, they could erect obelisks, lift large stones to a considerable height, and adjust them with the utmost precision, and this sometimes in spaces that would not admit the introduction of the inclined plane. Pliny mentions that one obelisk, built by Ramesses, was 99 feet in height. He adds, quote, and, fearing lest the engineer should not take sufficient care to proportion the power of the machinery to the weight he had to raise, he ordered his son to be bound to the apex, more effectually to guarantee the safety of the monument. Of the science of arithmetic, the Egyptians early were in need, both in their domestic economy and in the application of geometrical theorems, but its greatest utility was in the cultivation of astronomical studies. 
Indeed, mathematics was the handmaid of astronomy among the Assyrians, Babylonians, and Egyptians. An ancient writer says, quote, The orders and motions of the stars are observed at least as industriously by the Egyptians as by any people whatever, and they keep a record of the motions of each for an incredible number of years, the study of this science having been, from remotest times, an object of national ambition with them. Close quote. There is record in Egypt of the solid contents of barns before the calculation of areas. In the papyrus of Achmes, reaching back to about 2500 BC, there are problems relating to the pyramids which disclose some knowledge not only of geometrical figures, but the principles of proportion and possibly trigonometry. Cantor is of the opinion that the Egyptians were familiar with the properties of the right triangle in case of sides with the ratio 345 as early as 2000 BC. This opinion is based on the orientation of the temples and early records of the rope-stretching method of laying out the land. The Arabs developed the notion of specific gravity and gave experimental methods for its determination. Al-Biruni used for this purpose a vessel with a spout slanting downward. It was filled with water up to the spout, then the solid was immersed, and the weight of the overflow determined. This, together with the weight of the solid in air, yielded the specific gravity. Al-Khazani, in his book of the Balance of Wisdom, written 1137 BC, describes a curious beam balance with five pans for weighing in air and in water. One pan was movable along the graduated beam. He points out that air, too, must exert a buoyant force, causing bodies to weigh less. Figure 1. Use of Lever in Building Pyramids Thales, in his Pyramid and Ship Measurements, was probably the first to apply theoretical geometry to practical uses. He was able to predict an eclipse of the sun in 585 BC, and several practical applications of geometry are attributed to him. But the illustrious name among the Greeks, in respect to both mathematical and mechanical science, is that of Archimedes. The most important services of Archimedes were rendered in the science of pure mathematics, but his popular fame rests chiefly on his application of mathematical theory to mechanics. Hieron of Alexandria, called Hieron the Elder, was a mathematician and also a practical surveyor who lived in the 2nd century BC. His teacher, Chesabias, was celebrated for his mechanical inventions, such as the water clock, the hydraulic organ, and catapult. Hieron himself was the inventor of the Iolipile, which contains the germ of the steam engine and a curious mechanism known as Hieron's fountain. It is, however, in architecture that the Greeks and Romans made the most marked advance upon the achievements of the Egyptians, mechanically as well as artistically. The three principles of the beam, the arch, and the truss were known to the Greeks and Romans. Indeed, it is the opinion of H.W. Desmond that they possessed all the technical knowledge of the medieval builders. It is evident that they adopted from the Egyptians whatever they needed. The construction of the arch dates from an early period. Mathematical skill is a great factor in the development of architecture. The very term implies tools and force at command, and instruments for supplementing the labor of the hands. The draftsman, in designing a structure, should be conversant not only with the nature of his material, 
but also with the forces to which it is to be subjected, their magnitude, direction, points of application, and their effects. The ancient Romans not only constructed arches, but the largest domes of brick now in existence. These structures rest on all sides of the space to be covered, but there is also the simple or wagon-head vault, which rests on only two sides of the covered rectangle, leaving the other two free from all pressure. Further than this, the Romans invented that highly ingenious contrivance, the cross-vault, which exerts its whole pressure solely on the angles of the apartment, leaving all the sides free. The origin of this construction is simply the crossing of two vaulted passages lying at right angles to each other, and each corridor required to be left perfectly free. The crossway is covered by a ceiling that rests solely on the four angles or corners, the elliptic lines that form the internal ridges, called groins, can support not only themselves but the whole of the upper ceiling. The beauty and advantages of this kind of vaulting led the Romans to use it not only over crossways, but over corridors and long apartments with a boldness of construction that has never been equaled. With the decline of Roman power, this art of vaulting was lost and for centuries the basilicas of Italy and the churches of all Roman Christendom remained with nothing but timber roofs. The Byzantine Greeks, however, retained or else reinvented another mode of vaulting possessing many of the advantages of groining, but not all of them. This system depended on two simple geometrical principles. First, that every section of a sphere by a plane is circular, and second, that every intersection of two spheres is a plane curve and therefore circular. The Greek vaulting then consists wholly of spherical surfaces. A hemispherical dome may be supposed whose base circumscribes the plane of any apartment or compartment, square, rectangular, triangular, or polygonal. Imagine the sides of this plane continued upward as vertical planes till they meet the hemispheric surface. This meeting line must in every case be a semicircle and may therefore be made an open arch and the portions of the dome thus cut off from every side of its base may be omitted altogether, provided their office as buttresses to the remaining portion above be replaced by the pressure of some other vault, which may be of any kind, if it be applied against the semicircular arch. Hence, no walls are required on the sides of the supposed compartment, all the weight of the pendative dome, as it is called, being thrown on the angles of its plane. Thus this dome serves for covering an open crossway, and is so applied at the Mosque of St. Sophia at Constantinople. The covered crossway, a 115-foot square, might well be esteemed, in the barbarous age of its erection, a wonder of the world. The same idea repeated without end, the same sprouting of domes out of domes, continues to characterize the Byzantine style, both in Greek churches and Turkish mosques, down to the present day. Hope describes them as a congeries of globes of various sizes growing one out of another. This system of vaulting has been adopted by two great modern architects, Sir Christopher Wren at St. Paul's in London, and by Soufflot at St. Genevieve, Paris, by the former with great success, and in both made to harmonize well with the Roman style. There is no more striking and beautiful example of the application of mathematical principles to practical affairs than in the history of architecture. 
the close reasoning of the mathematician has been behind and above the work of the draftsman and artesian. His imagination has reached out boldly to the projection of new designs, restrained always by the immutable laws of science. His achievement is to unite strength and durability with beauty and geometric truth with grandeur. In architecture, says Ferguson, there is still to be taken into consideration not only that subtler and complexer force, the personal genius of the architect, but also the native genius of the people in which he is a sharer, that spirituality or temper of mind which is obvious enough in its stronger manifestations. Close quote. Thus, the nations that showed a talent for mathematics were building nations, since here was a science which could be definitely and immediately applied to practical use. It is necessary to discharge from the mind many unconsciously implied conditions before an exact picture of the pre-mechanical age can be gained. All the raw material of mechanical science was at hand, as much before as after the magical words of Newton or of Helmholtz, but mathematical genius had not yet touched the spring which dissipated the inertia of established habit. But before the civilized world could be transformed from a world utilizing, as one might say, only the more obvious natural forces, to a world filled with devices for multiplying hands and feet, for increasing the value of eye and ear, a news-gathering world where oceans are neighborly high-roads, and warfare a contest of scientific equipment. Before this transformation could happen, the mathematician had need to direct his analytic and speculative powers to the natural phenomena of the universe. Concerning this stage of the development of mathematics, Cassius J. Kaiser writes, A traditional conception, still current everywhere except in critical circles, has held mathematics to be the science of quantity or magnitude, where magnitude, including multitude, with its correlate of number, as a special kind, signified whatever was capable of increase and decrease and measurement. Measurability was the essential thing. That definition of the science was a very natural one, for magnitude did appear to be a singularly fundamental notion, not only inviting but demanding consideration at every stage and turn of life. The necessity of finding out how many and how much was the mother of counting and measurement, and mathematics, first from necessity and then from pure curiosity and joy, so occupied itself with these things that they came to seem its whole employment. Indeed, for direct beholding, for immediate discerning of the things of mathematics, there is none other light but one namely, psychic illumination, but mediately and indirectly they are often revealed, or at all events hinted, by their sensuous counterparts, by indications within the radiance of day, and it is a great mistake to suppose that the mathetic spirit elects as its agents those who, having eyes, yet see not the things that disclose themselves in solar light. To facilitate eyeless observation of his sense-transcending world, the mathematician invokes the aid of physical diagrams and physical symbols in endless variety and combination. The logos is thus drawn into a kind of diagrammatic and symbolical incarnation, gets itself externalized, made flesh, so to speak, and it is by attentive physical observation of this embodiment, by scrutinizing the physical frame and makeup of his diagrams, equations, and formulae, 
by experimental substitutions in and transformations of them, by noting what emerges as essential and what is accidental, the things that vanish and those that do not, the things that vary and the things that abide unchanged as the transformations proceed and trains of algebraic evolution unfold themselves to view. It is thus, by the laboratory method, by trial and by watching that often the mathematician gains his best insight into the constitution of the invisible world thus depicted by visible symbols. Indeed, the time is at hand when at least the academic mind should discharge its traditional fallacies regarding the nature of mathematics, and thus in a measure promote the emancipation of criticism from inherited delusions respecting the kind of activity in which the life of the science consists. Mathematics is no more the art of reckoning and computation than architecture is the art of making bricks or hewing wood, no more than painting is the art of mixing colors on a palette, no more than the science of geology is the art of breaking rocks, or the science of anatomy the art of butchering. Pernicious, because deeply embedded and persistent, is the fallacy that the mathematician's mind is but a syllogistic mill, and that his life resolves itself into a weary repetition of A is B, B is C, therefore A is C, and QED. That fallacy is the Cartago de Lenda of regnant methodology. Reasoning, indeed, in the sense of compounding propositions into formal arguments, is of great importance at every stage and turn, as in the deduction of consequences, in the testing of hypotheses, in the detection of error, in purging out the dross from crude material, in chastening the deliverances of intuition, and especially in the final stages of a growing doctrine in welding together and concatenating the various parts into a compact and coherent whole. But, indispensable in all such ways as syllogistic undoubtedly is, it is of minor importance and minor difficulty compared with the supreme matters of invention and construction. When the great Sophus Lee, great comparative anatomist of geometric theories, creator of the doctrines of contact transformations and infinite continuous groups, and revolutionizer of the theory of differential equations, was asked to name the characteristic endowment of the mathematician. His answer was in the following quaternion. Fantasy, energy, selbstvertrauen, selbstkritik. Not a word you observe about ratiocination. Fantasy, not merely the fine, frenzied fancy that gives to airy nothings a local habitation and a name, but the creative imagination that conceives ordered realms and lawful worlds in which our own universe is as but a point of light in a shining sky. Energy, not merely endurance and doggedness, not persistence merely, but mental vis viva, the kinetic, plunging, penetrating power of intellect. Selbstvertrauen and Selbstkritik, self-confidence aware of its ground, deepened by achievement and reinforced until in men like Richard Dedekin, Bernard Bolzano, and especially Georg Cantor, it attains to a spiritual boldness that dares leap from the island shore of the finite over into the all-surrounding boundless ocean of infinitude itself, and thence springs back the gladdening news that the shoreless vast of transfinite being differs in its logical structure from that of our island home, 
only in owning the reign of more generic law. Close quote. End of section 19.